Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Really excited today. Alina, who's with us? We're joined today by Peter Campbell, who is a renowned underwater archaeologist. He's held a number of high-profile positions, but he's actually the assistant director at the British School at Rome. Peter, hi. Hi, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, wow. Rome, how are things in Italy? Uh, it's a bit bizarre at the moment, as you can imagine. Uh, we're completely on lockdown, and just to go outside, we have to have a paperwork that, uh, from the government saying we're either going to essential work or to uh, go to the grocery store or to go to the hospital. And otherwise, you cannot go outside. So it's, it's quite restrictive and uh, kind of otherworldly here in Rome. So my latest thing with coronavirus is uh, yesterday I got asked to go to the supermarket for a, a really old sick lady um because i was doing a doorstep drop anyway for for uh sex pest who's like the greatest man ever but he's like one of the people on the list that can't leave his house and people now stand in the queue judging what's in your basket like i could see the guy behind me looking at the six bottles of wine going they're not essential you didn't have to leave the house for those and like people are shaming people online as well so someone went to uh aldi and like the middle of it is like a, a jumble sale anyway and someone had obviously done their shopping i thought oh i could do with a newbie and i'm gonna grab that and someone else has taken a picture and put them on twitter and i'm like seriously Seriously, have we come to that? I mean, if they sell a bin in the shop and I'm you want guilty. a bin, are we. I just like the guy was looking at the bottles of wine like I was Satan incarnate. I'm guilty of that. I did that yesterday actually, because uh, in <laughs> Poland the new restrictions are um, for every basically every cashier that's open, only three people can be in the shop. So two cashiers open, six people are allowed in the shop. And um, there's me standing in the queue and there's a woman complaining that the elderly get a special time. And she was like, oh, I got here really early. And then I had to stand here for hours because of these old people. Why do old people? And I was, do you know what? And then I shamed her on Twitter. So I have no shame shaming people. Oh no, some people deserve to be shamed on Twitter, but people judging what's in the basket of the person in front, get a life, people. It's going too far now. The old lady wanted the wine. I bought it for her and I'm not sorry at all. Peter, have you had any mad Corona nonsense going on there? Um, it actually, it hasn't been too bad. Um, but, uh, there was, a, I saw a homeless man being stopped and arrested by the police. Oh, well, I don't know if he was being arrested or just being taken to get treatment or something. Cause he was coughing really badly. So maybe he needed treatment. 
But um, it took six police cars for them to deal with with him. So, I mean, I think they're taking it very seriously. And, you know, I really feel bad for the homeless people because what are they supposed to do in this sort of thing? So I hope that they're getting help. It's insane. So here, um, hotels that are empty, obviously, um, have opened up and there are homeless people sleeping in the rooms for now to keep them safe. But I saw a photograph of a parking lot in Nevada. And what they've done is get white paint out and paint boxes on the floor of the parking lot so that when the homeless people go to sleep on the floor they're at a suitable social distanced uh distance from from the next homeless person and i'm like really that's not really a solution is it yeah it's really i mean in some ways these sort of crises bring out the best in people where you have kind of communities coming together and working together to buy things that people need that can't leave their homes or, or, you know, people singing on balconies. And then in other ways, it brings out the worst in people. And and the fact that they, with all the homes that are vacant and and hotels and all that kind of thing, the fact that they can't put the homeless people in the U.S. in beds is just absolutely tragic. Let's get away from coronavirus. I'm so excited that you've joined us because in my head, you are basically Dirk Pitt. Um, you are an underwater archaeologist and you spend your life diving and finding exciting stuff. I hope you don't spend the equal amount of time getting shot at and beaten up as he does. But how did you get involved in underwater archaeology? I actually get shot at a lot less now that I'm doing underwater than when I was working on land. <laughs> so uh, that's actually a good benefit of moving underwater. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was doing terrestrial archaeology for a long time and... Um, it was just sort of tedious excavating layer by layer. And uh, I, I, when I was a student, I thought, you know, there has to be a more exciting version of this. And, uh, and so that's when I went back to do my master's and then PhD in, in underwater archaeology. And um, I was absolutely correct. It's much more exciting underwater than it is on land. Though I do love working on land as well. So you haven't raised the Titanic like Dirk Pitt, um, but you have done some amazing stuff. Uh, talk to us about sunken cities. How uh, prevalent are they and, and how often do you come across them and where are they? Yeah, I, underwater archaeology is about more than just shipwrecks. There's actually a lot of stuff down there and sunken cities are one of the most exciting and interesting. Um, there's actually thousands of, of sunken cities around the world. Um, and I focus on the Mediterranean region, but you find them pretty much everywhere uh, because you have global sea level change, which occurred from essentially 18,000 years ago at the last glacial maxima, so when the glaciers were the largest uh, that they were, until around 5,000 years ago when we reached kind of this equilibrium where we are now with global sea level. Uh, and so you have all of these settlements and, and other types of sites from the Paleolithic to the Neolithic that are submerged, these massive tracts of land, I mean, uh, just huge almost subcontinents in some cases like Doggerland, which are submerged. And then from around 5,000 years ago until present, you have localized sea level change. Um, So this is where all of that weight from the glaciers caused changes in the Earth's crust, and that crust is still rebounding. And so you have sites like Pavlo Petri, which is one site that I was fortunate to work on, um, which is in Greece, and it is the world's oldest sunken city. So it dates from the late Neolithic until the Mycenaean period and uh, with the main concentration kind of in the Bronze Age, kind of the Minoan period for people who know the Minoans. Um, And uh, it's just a fascinating 
city in about two to three meters of water. So really shallow. Most sunken cities are very shallow because of wave action and things, you know, all the walls are mostly broken down, but you can still swim over roads and you see building foundations and thresholds. So you kind of see the doorways that exit from the buildings on the interior out to the streets. Uh, so there's whole road networks and uh, we have communal buildings. So there's a, a communal building right in the middle of the city that had kind of drinking glasses. So you can see people were, you know, um, cheersing each other and drinking around this communal building and then discarding, drunkenly discarding and smashing their glasses outside. Uh, and then tombs. So there's Tholos tombs, these, these kind of big crypts that you could go into. Um, so, I mean, there, it, it's a whole Bronze Age city just sitting there in relatively shallow water. That's amazing. So uh, what's the best thing you found there? Um, probably the storehouses, which kind of indicate this long distance trade that was occurring even in the Bronze Age. Um, so you, you have residential houses, which are quite obvious, and then you have kind of administrative houses and you have these kind of communal buildings. Uh, and then you have these kind of storehouses that are where they were storing kind of large containers that were moving goods back and forth around the Aegean and perhaps further afield. And how do, how do you go about finding a sunken city? Do you use documentary evidence first to, to know where it is and then go looking? Or is it just a case of getting out there and getting underwater and, and trying to find one? Well, it's gotten a lot easier these days uh, than it was in the past. In the past, you know, it was just spending time in the field, just kind of walking coastlines, going around, talking to the locals, trying to find out, you know, is there pottery in the sea, that sort of thing. Um, these days we have really great models of tectonic changes. So you can kind of see where areas are lifting up and where areas are submerging and you can go look in the areas that are submerging. So like Crete, for example, the West end of Crete is lifting up in the air. So you're not going to find any sunken cities there, but the East side of Crete is submerging. And so you have a number of sunken cities on the East side of Crete. So now that we have these kind of rough models of, uh, well, they're getting are getting quite refined models of tectonic changes uh, we can identify where sunken cities are likely to be while you're on here people are going to think of one place when you mention sunken cities and i'm i'm going to be one of them because uh, this has been going through my mind the whole time you've been speaking about the sunken cities um what is the deal with atlantis please don't judge me people do not judge me <laughs> So from the point of view of an actual professional, can you basically cut through the crap and tell us more about it? Yes, absolutely. Atlantis is not real. 100%. It was a, a story just told um, to convey a message, you know, essentially that you shouldn't mess with Athens. Um, completely fictional. Um but that doesn't mean that people don't, every time you mention Sunken Cities, people want to know about Atlantis. I, I've worked on two different sites that um, people have said were inspired, you know, inspired Plato to write the Atlantis myth. Um, one was Heliki, which is a city that was sunk uh, in the 5th century BC by a tsunami. And then the other was Pablo Petri. And both of them would have been ruins in the ocean, contemporary with Plato. So, um, you know, he... Sunken cities were a reality of ancient life in Greece. Uh, people would have seen them, uh, and they would have experienced events that did submerge cities. Uh, however, Atlantis itself was very much uh, created to convey a message, uh, but it was not based on any actual evidence of an actual place that existed. That's really sad. 
in a way. (laughs) (laughs) It was a definitive answer, though. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's funny because Atlantis was taken to be a myth and, and completely fictional until kind of British late 19th century, early 20th century kind of penny dreadfuls. And then people just wanted, they loved the story so much from these kind of comic books and things that they wanted it to be real. And then there are all these kind of people in the 60s and 70s who are like, well, maybe it can be real. Let's go search in, you know, the Bahamas (laughs) and all this kind of absolutely craziness. It kind of ties in with uh, Conan Doyle wrote that Lost World book as well, didn't he? Where they discovered like dinosaurs in South America and stuff. It seemed to be a thing with the Victorians. Yes, absolutely. So earlier when we were actually having a a chat before we we started recording, you mentioned, well, before that, we were talking about what we should define you as, uh, marine archaeologist or uh, underwater. And you actually mentioned work, working in caves. Is there anything else you can tell us, like your favourite places or um, any interesting artefacts you found in any caves? Yeah, I, I like to refer to myself as an underwater archaeologist because I work in every possible type of environment. And marine kind of conjures up the sea, but I work in, in rivers and lakes and underwater caves. Um, and so I had a, a book that came out in 2017, an edited volume called The Archaeology of Underwater Caves. And it's the first book really to bring together a global perspective on these really important sites. So I spent uh, a bit of time in North America diving kind of very muddy, low visibility, kind of gross uh, lakes. And then also some time in Albania diving in pristine, crystal clear. Some of the video that we live streamed to students, they didn't realize that we were actually underwater because it was so clear. It looked like we were just kind of inside a regular cave. Um, So Anyone interested in diving in caves, I recommend Albania instead of North America. But um, yeah, I mean, these are really fascinating sites in that um, you have really two main types. You have caves that were dry uh, at the time of the last glacial maxima. So, you know, like we were talking about before, when global sea levels were much lower, these were dry caves and people were living in them. They were creating art and they were doing really interesting things. And then global sea levels rose and submerged them. And so now you dive far back inside of these and you can find, uh, you know, in the case of Cosker Cave in France, you have these beautiful, you, you go down at 40 meters and you dive through the caverns and then you pop up in an air bubble and you have these beautiful Paleolithic paintings that are um, a lot like Lascaux Cave and some of these other famous French caves, but it's, you know, the entrance is submerged. Um, so there's a lot of potential for that. And then the other type of underwater cave site are these kind of, wells and springs like Bath in the UK, where for centuries people have been throwing religious offerings and other things inside of them. Um, and, and so you kind of, you dive down inside and you go straight to the bottom and you find collections of artifacts and votive offerings and you can find little statuettes and occasionally you find people that were thrown in and, and that sort of thing. So they're really an interesting, different type of site from what you find on, in, in the ocean like shipwrecks or sunken cities. I'm sold. You need to provide some more information after this podcast because I, I desperately, desperately need to go. It is my new hobby, basically. So thank you for telling us about this. <laughs> Peter, as sure. well, you have to understand that she is a complete philistine when it comes to anything to do with water or boats. So if you've sold her, you're winning at life, basically. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Peter, um, you've already mentioned it. I'm guessing 
mainly your work constitutes the obvious and that's shipwrecks. That's right. Yeah, I, I primarily work on shipwrecks um, just because there are so many. And then also my area of focus is primarily the Mediterranean uh, in the Greek and Roman periods. So yeah, again, an endless, endless stream there. Tell us about, you've excavated like a ship graveyard, haven't you? That's right. Yeah, in, in Forni, in Greece, a little tiny archipelago, we found what happened to be the largest concentration of ancient shipwrecks in the Mediterranean. Um, so we started speaking to fishermen and sponge divers, um, and they said, you know, oh, there's, there's a shipwreck over here and over there and that sort of thing. And uh, we thought, okay, we can put together a project. And when we went to start searching, we found out that their information was really, really, really good. And um, on the very first day, we found four shipwrecks. And then shortly thereafter, we had a day where we found six. And in the first season, we found 22. And the second season, 23. And it just kept going up. And so now we're at 58 shipwrecks in a little tiny insignificant archipelago that insignificant in terms of it never had... Um, large cities built on it or anything like that. It was very much a navigational point. And so lots of ships were passing by and anchoring and stopping and that sort of thing, but not unloading cargo. So it's incredibly significant in terms of the navigational landscape in the Mediterranean uh, and specifically in the Aegean. And uh, just over the centuries, dozens of ships have sank and we don't actually have a, we don't know the total number yet. We're still working. And and, uh, and hopefully we can start excavating in the near future because some of these wrecks are really important. They date from around um, uh, 550 BC all the way to 1920, where we have a vessel that was carrying Fix, the, the modern Greek beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's I've incredible. Go on. Can Alex and I join you on this? Because it <laughs> actually really sounds like a really good laugh and something that we could do because I was meant to do my diving license this summer and well, God knows what's going to happen now, but Oh my, I'd love to come and like have a look and, and, and work on some of this stuff. I mean, we'll just shovel dirt for you basically. <laughs> if you need minions, yeah, well, we're there. <laughs> the great thing about morning is that, you know, you have wrecks at every possible depth. So some of them are very deep, kind of pushing our, our limits um, of kind of mixed gases. They're down at 45 meters or, or deeper. Uh, yeah, some of them, well, the deepest ones at 65 meters, so incredibly challenging dive. But then others are, you know, just in two, three meters of water. So really shallow. And actually, there's even a sunken village at Pablo, or sorry, at, uh, at Forni. So a lot like Pablo Petri, there's this little village on one side of the island that's submerged. So just for good measure, we have we have shipwrecks and we have sunken cities there. Which ship are you I mean, dying to get at the most when you start excavating? Uh, so we have one shipwreck that uh, it's a carrying a cargo from the Black Sea, and it dates to around the second century AD, so the Roman period. And it's carrying hundreds of amphoras, which are kind of large terracotta jugs with two handles that would hold all kinds of cargo, like um, olive oil and uh, herbs and things like that, and, uh, or fish sauce. And um, this type of amphora has been known since the 50s and found in excavations on land, but a complete one has never been found, only in fragments. And so here we have a cargo, a ship carrying thousands of them. So, I mean, it's absolutely incredible to be able to see what they look like whole and then try and figure out, okay, 
they're coming from the Black Sea. Where are they going? Are they heading towards Athens? Are they heading out to the Levant? Um, who were they trading with? What were they exchanging? So it, it's kind of revealing this whole story of this thing that was only known in, as fragmentary remains before this. The closet archaeologist in me read an article about this, actually. So that would be really, really incredible to see um, if you guys are able to bring anything up. That Yeah, very, very excited. But enough about my closet archaeologiness. Uh, uh, sorry, classicist ancient history-ness. <laughs> Are you just making up words now, (laughs) Ellie? Go on. (laughs) If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> so, um, what, is, what are the most famous wrecks you've ever dived on? Oh, um... Let's see. Um, I worked for a while on the Hunley, which was the first successful submarine. So it sank in 1865. Uh, it sank a Union vessel in the U.S. off of South Carolina, and it was constructed and operated by the Confederate States. And, um, and uh, so I, I worked on that, um, trying to understand how it sank and why it sank and what happened to the people that were still stuck on the inside because all the bodies of the crew were still inside. Um, so that was that was quite interesting. Um, I would say, hmm. uh, I worked on the Queen Anne's Revenge, which was Blackbeard's shipwreck. Um, so that was it's probably the most uh, famous pirate ship that's been excavated. Uh, I sank off of North Carolina in the U.S. Um, and that's been a long multi-year project that's been fascinating. And I was just there for a very short time. Um, hmm. What else? To be honest, you don't need to think of any more. They're both quite epic <laughs> yeah. in terms of shipwrecks. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of ones that people have heard of mm. um, because there's, there's been a bunch of, of kind of famous ships regionally and things. Um, 
So like the Wawona, which was the first ship on the National Register in the U.S. Uh, oh, the Vasa in Sweden. The Vasa was this beautiful ship um, that, that sank on its maiden voyage in Stockholm Harbor and was raised in the 1960s and is now on display in a beautiful museum in the very heart of Stockholm. Um, it's a 17th century ship, and uh, it was the basis for the ship in the Goonies in the movie, if you guys have seen that. <laughs> Everyone's so seen it, So it looks I think. like it's an amazing vessel. Anyone who hasn't seen oh. the Goonies needs to go and I do some, <clears throat> oh, We're on lockdown. If you haven't watched that by tomorrow night, you're dead to me. It's a classic. What? <laughs> it is a classic. How do, how right. do I manage all of this work and a film? <laughs> you, you have to make time I, I, for the Goonies. I'll watch it. I promise I'll watch it. Yeah, tell her, Peter. Is that what made you want to be a marine archae- or an underwater archaeologist? Uh, yeah, probably the Goonies <laughs> and Indiana Jones probably got me into archaeology. That's probably why I'm here. Okay, <laughs> have you, you ever Spielberg. found treasure like that? I have dove on... I'm probably getting close to a thousand shipwrecks, and I have never seen any gold or silver at that's, all. That's sad. Wow. Um, well, I yeah, it's uh, it's not really what we're looking for because we're trying to like reveal these stories about like the everyday people and gold and silver were really quite rare in the past in, in actuality. But it kind of highlights every single ship I've ever dove on, I think has had some sort of destruction from people looking for gold and silver. Oh, really? So people are convinced that all of these ships are pirate ships or have gold and silver and that sort of thing. And they're destroying them at a, a huge rate. I mean, and these are non-renewable resources. So it's not like natural resources where if you stop fishing for a while, they'll come back. Once these things are, you know, damaged and destroyed, there's no fixing it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so there, there isn't gold and silver on 99% of all of these shipwrecks. Yet people are kind of, rummaging through them using dynamite in some cases trying to get at gold that doesn't exist infuriating so we're talking about general shipwrecks here i want to talk change this the the subject just a tiny 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 bit and talk about a few battle shipwrecks have you worked on any of those uh yeah in all different time periods but probably the most famous one is the battle of the eggety islands so this is a project off the coast of western sicily and it's a naval battle between rome and carthage that happened on march 10th 241 bc and it's the only ancient naval battle that's been found by archaeologists so we we know lots about ancient naval battles from historical sources but this is the first time we have tangible evidence of what an ancient naval battle looks like uh, and we found these large bronze rams. Uh, these are these kind of oddly shaped things that would fit on the front of the warships. And then in this time period, they would try and smash into the enemy to try and get them to sink. So you're kind of turning your warship into a kind of torpedo that's human propelled. And um, this is a real, it's a deep site. It's almost 100 meters deep uh, out in the middle of the open ocean. So it's a really challenging site and it's spread over a huge area because these ships smashed into each other and then broke apart on the surface and percolated through the water column. So it's not like a, a nice um, pile of amphoras like we find with merchant ships. Instead, it's completely distributed. I mean, you can really get the trauma of the battle by looking at how spread apart it is because, I mean, it just looks like explosions happened. 
Um, and uh, yeah, but it, it's incredibly important because this is the earliest Roman military assemblage we have, and it's the only naval battle we have. So we're kind of rewriting all, all kinds of books on on the Roman Navy and Roman military and, and Carthaginian Navy and military. What is you say you've um, worked on sort of all time periods? Alina and I are, are boring twenty twentieth century war historians. What kind of warships have, from that period have you um, been and had a look at? Well, there are loads of World War One and World War Two wrecks all over the place. So off of Albania, we found the Regina Margherita, which was a World War. It was the World War One flagship of Italy, um, but it sank in World War Two. And so by World War Two, it had been kind of relegated to being a tender and supply vessel, a supporting vessel, and uh, it struck a mine off the coast of Albania and sank there. Um, so it's fascinating in terms of World War One warship design, but then also as World War II kind of uh, reuse of, of earlier vessels that were not as armored. Um, there's a, a hospital ship that we found. Uh, well, we found, I mean, it, it was well known because it's incredibly shallow. You can see it on Google Earth if you look in Saranda Bay in Albania. And uh, it's a large hospital ship that was very sadly bombed by the Germans while full of injured Italian soldiers who were heading home. So after Italy capitulated, Germany was incredibly upset that Italy was no longer in the war. And so they started attacking Italians. And so this kind of uh, retribution phase resulted in a lot of Italian casualties. And uh, so this hospital ship was fully loaded with Italian troops that had been injured in Albania and were heading back to Italy. And then a German aircraft strafed it and sunk it in the harbor. Uh, And so it's still sitting there on one side today. That's, yeah, I was just going to um, raise the fact that, that some of these sites that you dive to are graveyards, aren't they? They are, yeah, and, and quite solemn. And Because um, uh, I worked on tall ships myself um, and have been at sea. And, uh, yeah, so it's quite – every time you find a wreck, you have this incredible moment of excitement at finding something that nobody has seen or potentially nobody or very few people have seen in uh, sometimes thousands of years. But then there's, it's also kind of muted by the realization that in some cases, you know, people died on board this wreck. Um, that's incredibly evident in, on the naval sites. So both World War II, but then also the, uh, the naval battle between Rome and Carthage, where you have helmets and things that indicate, you know, people died here. Um, but then also uh, on the merchant ships, I mean, some of the, the wrecks that we found in Forni in Greece um, they're right on these massive, massive cliffs. And if they went down in a storm, there's just nowhere for the sailors to go. So, I mean, they must have drowned on that site. And so you're always incredibly respectful that these are graveyards, uh, you know, that people died on these sites. And so every action you do, you do it cognizant of the fact that um, you're trying to tell these people's story, um, you know, rather than kind of profit or take advantage or exploit. Just going back to um, my Dirk Pitt thing, because it is it is the only measure I have for underwater archaeology, because I'm a total novice when it comes to the subject. Um, he gets into quite a lot of trouble. Do you, have you ever, uh, when you're diving, obviously sometimes you're exploring unknown places and that. Can it be dangerous? Have you ever had any close shaves? Yeah, I mean, there's there's always going to be close shaves. Uh, and there's always a bit of danger. Um people are always the most dangerous part of anything. So humans are always the ones you need to worry about. Um, By and large, we have very safe diving practices. 
Um, it's mostly on land that we get into trouble where, you know, in some places you have to worry about um, organized crime, trying to shake you down or get bribes. Um, you know, it's, it's often on land that the really kind of dangerous bit happens. Uh, and then, but in the water, things do happen. So, I mean, you do have marine life. Um, I'm never very worried about sharks because they're mostly just kind of interested. They're kind of like uh, dogs and that they're just interested in what you're doing. They kind of hang slightly out of you and, and kind of keep an eye on you and trying to figure out what you're doing. Um, you have to be careful if you're poking your fingers in places because there's things like eels that um, are more scared of you than, um, than you should be of them. But if you poke a finger in a den, then um, they'll, they'll definitely take off your finger. Um, and then, uh, you, I mean, you have some things like uh, I had two colleagues that were diving in one of our, our usual caves in Albania um, that has not been dove very much. We were doing some of the early exploration of it. And while they were down there, there was a rock slide. And so they were down quite deep and all of a sudden everything just went completely black and they couldn't see anything. And they just heard this enormous sound. And then on the surface, there was just a huge amount of sediment that was coming out and it turned the entire crystal clear water into just a muddy mess. And it took a long time for that to clear out. And fortunately, um, it happened deeper than where they were. And so they weren't taken down with the rock slide. But that's the kind of thing that you just, you don't know what's going to happen. Every dive, you plan very carefully because any number of things can go wrong. Um, you get trapped it under a, a rock slide at depth and, and that's the end of you. Just, we've mentioned Atlantis, but in terms of documented places that um, we know existed that are lost, so it could be a city, a shipwreck, if you could find anything that's missing, what would it be? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I've always wanted to find an Athenian trireme. So, I mean, Athens was this incredible naval superpower, that, that ruled, you know, the Eastern Mediterranean, but we've never actually found their ships that they did it. I mean, this is the, the heart of what made, this is the wooden walls that made Athens a power, and we've never actually found one of those. So I would love to find one of those. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's a bunch of uh, kind of lesser known sites that I would love to find. There's a site right on the border between Montenegro and Albania that um, Montenegrin divers have been kind of slipping under the water over for years and illegally looting and, and pulling up these incredible little statuettes and these um, silver coins, Roman coins and things, and um, eluding, eluding officials and law enforcement. Um, but if we could find that, it looks like a really important Roman period shipwreck that could tell us a whole lot about what uh, the trade was in the Eastern Adriatic at that time. Um, but it's kind of one of these ghost ships that we, we've seen the evidence from, but nobody's you know, legitimate working with governments has been able to find. Um, I'm looking at this from the perspective of uh, Titanic and Lusitania, because that's my wheelhouse in that. But um, jurisdiction can be a big problem can't it when you're dealing with oceans and water and boundaries and who owns what yeah i mean the oceans really are kind of the wild west of today and people really do have free reign um governments have control over a certain amount of territorial waters and then there's international guidelines that take over um so really nobody should be kind of salvaging and treasure hunting uh, ships that are older than 100 years anywhere in the world, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And um, so shipwrecks are actually a really rapidly declining resource 
just because people smashed them up looking for anything of value. So recently off of Indonesia, a number of World War II wrecks belonging to Britain, the U.S., and the Netherlands have completely disappeared. So they were identified and mapped as part of some scientific missions a couple of years ago, just quite recently. And then when those missions went back to kind of document them and, and kind of leave memorials for the, the dead soldiers and everything like that, they found that there was nothing left but a hole in the ground. And it was scrappers teams uh, going down and salvaging everything from the bottom to then melt down and sell as, um, as steel. So, um, yeah, I mean, shipwrecks are, are disappearing at an alarming rate. I've got to say, that is disgusting. I, I couldn't imagine that happening in my field. I mean, it does. It, it happens in, in the Holocaust. But taking basically graveyards and melting them down for scrap, that's, I, I've got no words. I'm sorry. I think the analogy of uh, calling it the Wild West is, uh, is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it happens much closer to home as well. I mean, every shipwreck from the Battle of Jutland has been ripped open and uh, copper wire and everything pulled out by, uh, by salvers working in Europe. So, I mean, just... all of those ships have enormous damage. I mean, like the Invincible alone took like a thousand people down with her. That's a graveyard for a thousand people. So to be stripping it for profit is, as Alina says, it's disgusting. Have you been, have you done Jutland? I haven't, no, but uh, some of my colleagues have been working on it for years and um, it's incredibly exciting for them to find these wrecks. I think they've now found all of them. Mm. Um, But then to just see the damage done by the looters who are kind of, you know, sneaking in there and ripping up the decks and then trying to get at uh, anything of value is just incredibly heartbreaking. I mean, that happening in Pearl Harbor, that would never happen in Pearl Harbor. The Americans would be on it so fast. These people would be put into prison. It's... uh, yeah, sorry, I guess, I'm a little bit annoyed <laughs> right now. Jurisdictionally, I guess it's easier to deal with somewhere like Pearl Harbor than it is to deal with somewhere like Jutland, which is, is not as close to the coast. And obviously, the jurisdictions are a lot more fuzzy, isn't it? Um, no, it, it actually it actually isn't. Sorry, but it, it's um, any, any Navy ship that sinks remains the property of the country in perpetuity. And then all of the ships at sea are being tracked and recorded their locations anyway. So it's actually relatively easy to create marine protected areas and say nobody's allowed to stop for, you know, several hours over this position. We know where the wrecks are. And then um, these days with satellite monitoring, I mean, you see these huge, I mean, miles and miles long um, plumes of oil coming off of these wrecks as they're being salvaged. So as they're salvaging them and ripping them up, um, they're releasing the oil, damaging the environment. Uh, and that can be seen from space and, and that kind of thing can be easily monitored. There's kind of artificial intelligence, machine learning programs already mapping these sorts of things for the environmental damage. You could just say, okay, when we start seeing these plumes, we need to send you know, law enforcement there to stop the looting that's happening. At the end of the day, it's just archaeology, but we're very much a maritime world, even if we don't see it. I mean, if people sitting in their homes today look around at all the things around them, like 95% of those things were moved by cargo ships. And uh, there's a lot of similarities in the past. The ancient Mediterranean was very much, even the Bronze Age was a globalized world with lots of people moving and exchanging goods and interacting and that sort of thing. And so maritime movements and connectivity is very much a human story. And uh, I think for archaeology, 
it's been realized for some time, but now there's new tools and methods and more people getting involved in it. I think that it's really going to be a much larger sector of the field moving forward. So there's a lot to learn. Um, you know, you have these historians that are writing these kind of grand maritime narratives of culture and the sea and that sort of thing um, from the, the corrupting sea to, to um, yeah, some popular books these days that are coming out. Uh, but archaeology has been kind of slower to mainstream it. And I think that in the next couple of years, you're going to see kind of some grand books being written about kind of maritime connectivity through archaeology. Um, you know, the, the development of the modern world, the development of the ancient world, um, who we are today based on, you know, movements of people and goods by ships across great distances. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's a very human story that's going to take on wider prominence. Are you going to write a book I'm... about it? Um, <laughs> well, I would love to, but uh, I don't know that I have time. But uh, maybe one day, years from now. Or, well, let's see how long the quarantine lasts. If yeah. this goes on for a year, then I'll probably have plenty of time. <laughs> I think I'm switching my specialty, Alex. You say that I've with decided. every guest we interview, though. You're, you've, like, banded about 12 different uh, in the last three days. Um, yeah, it's true. The grass is always greener, isn't it? And then we go back to our piles of books and we think, oh... <laughs> Well, you know, when I finished my undergraduate, I was digging holes in Mississippi in the U.S., um, this incredibly flat landscape, just trudging through mud, digging test pits and things. I was like, you know, if I have to do just dig holes for minimum wage, I might as well do it in the Mediterranean. And so I'll say, no matter what you're doing, it's always better on a beach. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. You do maritime archaeology and you can be on a beach all the time. Coming from someone who uh, grew up about a thousand miles from the nearest ocean in either direction, didn't you? Um, it's a pretty big leap to make, but uh, you definitely sold it to us. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Carolyn Day at Furman University in South Carolina about, well, about disease and about how at one point in history it was actually deemed fashionable to be dying. Uh, very relevant and very topical for these days. Um, so join us for that. Until then, stay safe. If you possibly can, stay home. This is Nighthawk signing off. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.